chapter 13, I believe uh, this is our seventh message in this chapter, I believe it is, as we're going through the book of Matthew, and this should complete it, <laughs> chapter 13 before, Lord willing, we move on to 14 next week, uh, a lot has been in this chapter, um, in a moment I'll be reading the text, I think uh, I want to begin with the first note that you have, and I want to kind of use that in a moment to set up the text, um, but I want to kind of mention something, and I'm saying this only to spur your prayer right where you're sitting, right? Right where you're sitting, pray for yourself, pray for me, um, because I'm going to confess to you, I'm, uh, sometimes I'm probably a little too transparent and I hope I don't regret saying this, right? Um, this is one of those, so, so, so if you were here last week, I don't know if you, you caught what happened, but that was a very powerful passage that the Lord gave us last week. And the Lord was just among us, and he was challenging us because of the severity and the gravity of that passage. And now we're moving on that is to a section of six verses that finishes chapter 13, transitions. So this is a transitional section. Um, and so here's the transparent statement. Um, every week, we're totally dependent upon the Lord to open the text. And I don't know that this week that I feel like the Lord has fully opened this text to me for whatever reason. Uh, I've gotten some things, but I just feel unprepared today. Um, and we have plenty of things, so don't think, oh, it's probably a good short one today. I'm not saying it's going to be a short one. I just I, I don't know that yet I've got my teeth into this fully and arms around the point of this text. So while you're sitting there, now here's the problem. Here's the problem. I don't know who you are. There are several people sitting here this morning. You have not literally yet prayed for today's service, and you have not asked the Lord to reveal his word to you. You just come in like it's just magically going to happen. You need to stop doing that, okay? Plead, like right now, you should like kind of hear me in the background and bring the Lord into the foreground, like right where you're sitting and say, God, please reveal yourself, open this text to us today, because it's in the Word of God and we want to have it revealed to us. This is our text for today. So you should be praying, those of you who are online, uh, wherever you're at, watching a recording of this later, sitting at your dining room table, sitting in the living room, watching on a little phone, wherever it is, if you have not prayed and asked the Lord to reveal and open his word, well, then you're asking to receive nothing. So ask the Lord to give you something this morning and even to use even someone like me to kind of be a prompter in this process. So if you would, in a moment, we're going to begin in verse 53 to 58, and that'll complete the chapter. But let's back up and I want to give you some, some quick overview. You ready? All right. So we've had this chapter of parables. There's been seven of them about the kingdom. They've given us information inside about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Then it was followed by another parable about those who are trained in the kingdom of heaven. And now we come to this transitional time. So for the last, if you've been with us, for the last nine and a half chapters, this is important, Jesus' ministry, so we're looking at about a year, a little over a year in the last nine and a half chapters. But they've all been centered around the Sea of Galilee, mainly around Capernaum up on the northern point. And that's kind of been the springboard where Christ is going out and doing his ministry from there. 
But here's what I want you to get. He's not really left very far from the Sea of Galilee. In a moment, we're going to read a transition in verse 53 that moves into verse 54. He's finally going to go back into the hill country of Galilee, about 20 miles from where he's been centered. So he hasn't really done this. Again, over a year, he's now heading back into the hill country. He's going even to his hometown of Nazareth. And you're going to see what happens there. One more thing of transition. One more thing of explanation before we read the text. And this will be the note that you're getting ready to have. Of those seven parables, if I were to ask you, which one do you think was the most important? They're all important. And they're all revealing things about the kingdom of God. But is there one that perhaps is the most important? I would contend on the basis of Matthew, or Mark chapter 4, verse 13, that one is the key. Don't say it out loud, but think in your mind, okay? You say, can you even remember, right? So there was the sower, and there was the weeds among the wheat, and there was a mustard seed, and there was leaven. There's a hidden treasure, a pearl of great price, and a dragnet. Out of those seven, which one do you think is the key? According to Mark chapter 4, verse 13, the key to the rest, Jesus says, of the parable of the sower. Parable of the sower. He says to his disciples, if you don't understand this one, how will you understand the rest? Do you remember? We reviewed this last week. I'm not going to do all of it now. Do you remember the main point of the parable of the sower? It is this. This is important. We can give the same gospel, the exact same presentation to a group or the same presentation over and over and over and over, it will meet different results. And so we're supposed to learn something from that. There were four different reactions to the gospel in the parable of the sower. Not going over all four, but you'll remember three out of four were basically a rejection of that, and only one out of four was an acceptance of that. If you're taking notes, write this down. Having just given us the parable of the sower, Matthew is now going to illustrate that and prove it by the hard-hearted people of Nazareth. So they're going to have Christ come back into their hometown, and you're going to see the truth of the parable of the sower illustrated right before our eyes. You think, well, surely the gospel, it's good news. Everybody wants to hear it. It's awesome. We should have it. People are ready to accept it. You would think. Can I just throw something? Literally, this is in my mind. It has nothing, not nothing, as it's not smoothly connected to this text. But I saw a quote the other day, and I forget who it was from. It might have been a man named C.T. Studd, or it might have been a modern person. I literally saw it on a, a video that Deanna was watching of missionaries. Let this say, I don't know why it's in my mind. The gospel is only good news if it gets there in time. I've not been able to get away from that. Then that's not my message. I'm, I'm literally up here talking about that, and it's like, the gospel is only good news if it gets there in time. Otherwise, it's not good news. Why didn't you come earlier? My mom, my dad never heard this. And the Lord will probably use that in some way to connect into this passage today. He's going to prove the parable of the sower that many people reject the gospel. Note, if, if you would, verse number 53. Let's read our text. And when Jesus had finished these parables, remember he's at the Sea of Capernaum. He's at Capernaum, the Sea of Galilee. He's teaching part of the parables from a boat. Then he goes inland and apparently continues others of the parables privately with his disciples. When he had finished these parables, he went away from there. So he's leaving Capernaum. 
Let me say this. I don't have, man, I'm telling you, we could take literally three hours to just track down all of this and prove it, but I'm going to make a statement. There's a gap of time, not very long, but there's a gap of a few days. If I had to guess, I would say six, seven, eight days between verse 53 and verse 54. So let's back up and read it again. And in our mind, let's remember there's a gap of time. It's not immediate 53 to 54. Some things happen. If I have time, I'll allude to them in a little bit. Again, verse 53. When Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there, Capernaum, a few days later, Coming to his hometown, again in the hill country, he taught them in their synagogues. Mark and Luke give other pieces of insight. They let us know that it's pretty clear here. This is on the Sabbath day. So Jesus comes to his hometown. He's in the synagogue. We don't know what day he arrived at Nazareth, but we're jumping into the story. He comes into town. It's now Saturday, and it's Jesus' turn to teach. He's of age. You get 30 years old, you can now teach in the synagogue. And Jesus is probably around 31 years old at this time. Verse 54 again, coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue. Notice, he taught them so that. He taught so that. He taught in such a way, so he taught them so that they were astonished. I don't know if you've ever been in a service where it's astonishing. I think of the word astonished, and I'm picturing like two different reactions. One is just a, and the other is the mouth is literally open. So these people are astonished at what Christ is saying. Coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom? Where did this man get this wisdom? And these mighty works. Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Aren't those his brothers? And are not all his sisters with us? Maybe James, maybe the four half-brothers have moved away for a little while, or maybe they've gone to track down Jesus. They've been gone for a while, married with them, but apparently the sisters have married local boys, and aren't they still with us, the sisters here? Isn't this, 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 is, this is the same person. Where then did this man get all these things? They're blown away. And then there's a shift, 57, 58, and they took, and they took, Offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. Read that again. So they get offended at him. The idea there took offense means they stumbled. They're stumbling at Christ. Again, Matthew's very condensed here, very condensed. We're, we're missing a lot, we're just getting highlights. So he's teaching. They're astonished. A little bit later, they're very offended. They're stumbling over Christ. And then he says, a prophet is not without honor, except in his own hometown, in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there. Why? Because of their unbelief. Would you notice with me, number one, this morning, there's a moment of shocking revelation. There's a moment of shocking revelation. Uh... If you don't like Bible teaching, then you're getting ready to take a nice nap, okay? 
Because the whole first point is very teachy. I'm just confessing that. But if there's anything in you that says, I like to study, I want to study the life of Christ, I want to learn a little bit more. We have this gap of time from like two years old till he's 12. We get a little snapshot of when he's 12. We have this summary statement over in Luke that he grew in wisdom and stature and favor with people. But other than that, we've got like, like 27 years of, other than a couple of snapshots. We don't really know what happened. Well, today we should get some clues if you really pay attention to what's happening in the text. And so we're going to get a little teachy, and we're going to have to fill in the gaps, and I hope I never harm the text in any way. Work with me. Here we go. By this time, at this point in Nazareth, the people, so again, it's been a year. Jesus has been out ministering. I'll promise you they would have heard of the miracles of Christ. They would have heard of the powerful works of Christ, the healing ministry, the large crowds. And I'm sure by now they've put two and two together that this this is the one, yeah, we haven't noticed it. That's him, right? Mark chapter 6, verse number 1, adds a little piece of information. And in my mind, I, I try to use my imagination and picture these things and then think what would happen in people's hearts. Mark 6, 1 says that as Jesus is coming into, his, into Nazareth, his disciples are following him. So picture that. Guys, this is a tiny town. A tiny town. I mean small. If the little research that I looked at is accurate, I mean it is a very small. If you've ever, some of you have been to our house or been to our neighborhood. If you've been to Chuck and Jones' house or other people who live over here at Hunter's Glen, right? Nazareth is probably smaller than Hunter's Glen. I think we have, I want to estimate about 100 houses in our neighborhood. Chuck's probably cut the grass in over half of them, but anyway. About 100 houses or so, give or take. We probably have something like between 250 and 400 people. That's the size town. So here it is, years later, Jesus walks in. They're going to recognize that. I'm not saying that everybody's outside the day that Jesus walks in. But as he's coming in, some are going to recognize he's flanked by these followers. And not just 12. We know there would be at least 14 of them because Matthias and a man named Justice are also among the 12 because they're going to qualify for this. So they're following Christ. And in, so here's, here's the thing. In comes small town boy who made it big. And in he comes, all right? And so notice with me the following. He's flanked by them, and I wonder, here's my imagination. They'd already heard of the miracles of Christ. They've heard of the large crowds. They've heard of the powerful teaching. But to actually see him walk back into town jars them or is alarming. It's one thing to to hear about it. It's another thing to go where he's at and see him in these other venues That's our guy. But to now see him come back to his hometown, literally flanked by these disciples who are hardcore committed. They've given their life to your guy. What does that do to them? Obviously, they recognize that Jesus is a local boy. It's evidenced by they start listing off his family members. But a while ago, I made such a big deal about prayer. And if you, I hope you never come to church without asking the Lord to reveal himself. Because, guys, I want to contend these last six verses in chapter 13 reveal a truth to us. Let it sink in. Here it is. Jesus had lived in Nazareth for probably 27 years in a small little community Probably smaller than my community over here, my little neighborhood. We have two homeowner meetings per year. I only usually go to the May one. 
right? I don't go to the January one. In my 17 years there, I've probably spoken up once, if that. I can't even remember. I think one time I said something very quickly. The average person over there would not necessarily know anything about who I am. So here comes Jesus back to his hometown where he has lived for 27 years. And here's the thing I'm hitting at. Though he's lived there 27 years, they have not one time had a clue whatsoever that God in flesh had been living among them the whole time. What does that teach us? That says something to me. That's a warning to me because this is a fact. What he says here blows them away. They have no idea who they're looking at. He's not changed. He's been the same person. He's been there 27 years. They don't know what they're looking at. Why? Write this down. This is a proof and this is an evidence. This shows how blind mankind can be to the things of God. How blind we can be spiritually. This is a revelation of how, guys, we are totally reliant on God to reveal himself and to reveal his truth to us. I've come to this conclusion. God can be right in front of our face as he is everyone on the planet today. And people will know nothing about God unless God enters their sphere of awareness. Unless he reveals himself and his truth to us. We're in the blind spot. God was living among them 27 years. They have no clue whatsoever. We're reliant upon Him. Now, what I want to do, I want to spend the majority of our time today obviously talking about the Lord Jesus, but I need to do this. I'm going to do it quickly because while we're here, this has to happen. I can't skip this. We need to notice a few things about Jesus' family while we're here, right? This, if we're ever going to do it, now's the time. This gives us a few revelations and I think some implications, so I'm, I would not die for all of the things that you're getting ready to see on the screen, except... The third one, I am very confident of it. But the other three that you'll see, I believe pretty strongly. The third one, I know is a fact. What are the implications from this text? Verse 55 and 56. Look, read it again. Watch this. Our text says, Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? And are not his sisters all with, all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? Think about that. What does that teach us? Number one, that tells us Jesus, this is not on the handout. Jesus, guys, you ever wonder what kind of family Jesus had? He had a large family. Raise your hand. Anybody in here, counting mom and dad, you came from a family of 10 or more. Would you raise your hand? Anybody? I know there's a few. Yes, I remember that, Miss Coralie. Is she? Really? So Matthew and Coralie, that's it? Everybody, okay, Miss Pat. So three people in our congregation today came a family of 10 or more. One thing we know, Jesus had a family of 10 or more. You'll see why in a moment. Write this down, though. It is presumed from this text and several others like it that Joseph was probably already passed away. It appears that Joseph has already died. Why? He's not even named. Isn't this like, isn't this the carpenter? That might be another hint as to how small Nazareth is. He's called the carpenter. Uh, which of the carpenter? The one. We got one. We got one. Isn't, isn't this the son of the carpenter? And then Matthew also says that they call Jesus. Isn't he the carpenter? So is Adopted dad was the carpenter. Now he was the carpenter. He's gone. We need a new carpenter around here. So he's not even named. Presumably he's already passed away. What does this next thing tell us? Jesus has four half-brothers. Again, just hitting some clues. Wonder what the life of Christ is like. He has four half-brothers. Three out of the four are named after patriarchs of the Jews. Three out of four are named after the, tw uh, the three of the sons of Jacob. What does that tell us? This family is extremely devoted to the Jewish faith. 
This family is very, so what kind of family is a large family? Number two, it's a family that is extremely devoted to the Jewish faith. If you ever read the books of James and Jude, who are mentioned in the text, then you know full well that they are very zealous for the law. James is later going to be called James the Just. James is all for grace, but he's not about just living riotously and living licentiously as if there is no law of God. We're not saved by keeping the law of God. Here's what that tells me. Of all the people in Israel, God placed his son in a family that was very zealous for the Jewish faith. This third one I know confidently. If you want to write this down, that Jesus has four half-brothers and at least three half-sisters. You say, how do we know that's half-sisters? Look at verse 56. And are not all his sisters with us? We've taught this multiple times. While we're here, I'm going to repeat it. If there was one sister, it would say, and is his sister not with us? If there were two, it would say, and are not his sisters both with us? So it could be five or six or seven or ten sisters. We don't know. But there's at least ten in this family. So here's a quick point. That he has four half-brothers and at least three half-sisters tells us that the doctrine, the Catholic, the Roman Catholic Church's doctrine, the false doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary is destroyed by this text. I pulled up one little fella, and I, he had like out of five stars. I pulled up, I was looking for some information, and I saw one out of five, and I went and clicked on, and he was trying to defend some wacko way how you got to maintain the perpetual virginity of Mary. And some of you are like, what in the world are you talking about? Mary, when she had Jesus, was a virgin, and after that, and she was already got, so she becomes pregnant with Christ by the Holy Spirit. Her and Joseph get married. They have no physical relations until after Christ is born, but once Christ is born, they have normal marital physical relations like other married couples, and they have at least seven other kids after that. There's no way you can say that Mary was perpetually a virgin. You have to destroy this text to do that. This text destroys that doctrine, clearly. There's no denying of that. This next one, I'll have you write it down. I think this is pretty clear. To me, it's clear. And I'm going to just quickly flesh this out to us. So pay attention here. All indications are that Jesus' earthly family were not seen as extraordinary. Did you pick that up in the text? There's nothing extraordinary. What makes that even more powerful in my mind is that this is such a small community. It's a very small town. Again, perhaps the estimates, 250 to 400 people in this town, and they're not standing out. There are at least 10 of them who are in this little town. They make up 10 of them, and they're not outstanding. This tells me, here's a clue about the early life of Christ. What kind of life did Christ live? Apparently, he lived such a relatively quiet life himself that when he stands and teaches in the synagogue, it blows people away because they're not expecting it of him. Some people have tried to surmise that Jesus performed miracles before launching his ministry. I think this text destroys that indirectly. There were no great miracles done by Christ because they're wowed by what they're now hearing about the new honored son of Nazareth. But his family is perceived as ordinary, not extraordinary. Jeff, where are you getting that from? Watch. Again, Joseph's not named. Isn't he the carpenter? No, they don't say, isn't that Joseph's boy? Watch. 
I might be reading too much into how this is worded, but it says, is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Do you see distance there? You guys see distance there? It's not like, isn't his Mary, isn't mother is Mary his mother? It, it's Mary. There's no, oh, it's Mary's son. Well, of course he's doing these great things. That's not what's happening. Isn't his mother called Mary? Mary. Yeah, isn't his mother called Mary and his father was the carpenter? Then we come to these four brothers and to their, you know, I guess some credit perhaps. The brothers are familiar enough to be named, but they're insignificant enough to be implied they're not special. Do y'all see that? And are not his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? The point is, they're nothing special. We're not bringing them into play. No one here is saying, I always knew that Joseph and Mary's boy was going to be something. Going by them. And hey, any brother of James and Joseph and Simon and Judas has to be a great... No, no, no. Wait a minute. They're, they're good guys. They're, they're good guys. Pretty good dudes, but isn't he the brother of those boys? Yes. Isn't he her? What? Mary? Mary. Yeah, Mary. And the carpenter. Nothing spectacular. If that is true, I want to propose two conclusions from that. I realize you're not writing notes. And we're talking about some filler information about the life of Christ and his family that maybe the Lord will use in our future studies. But if that last point that we just made, they're not extraordinary, is true, can I draw two conclusions? Number one, you'll not see it written down. This world often fails to recognize eternally great people. This world often fails. We live in a world that makes a, a lot about sinners. You look at the people who are mostly adored on social media, and they are vile, wicked sinners who oppose God. Our world loves people like that, but when someone who is going to be eternally great is right in front of their face, they don't recognize them. My mind, some of you pretty soon are going to come up in your reading, in your Old Testament reading at the end of Genesis. Joseph, this is 1900 years before this, a different Joseph, the original Joseph, is going to be number two man in all of Egypt, and he's going to arrange a meeting with Pharaoh to meet his aged father who was coming down from the land of Canaan to spend his final years in Egypt because the famine's up there and they have food down in Egypt, thanks to Joseph. And I wonder when Joseph went to Pharaoh and said, hey, I would like you to meet my dad. I, it doesn't say, but I just wonder if anything in Pharaoh, who's a busy man, thought, okay, I'll make some time to meet your pop. I'll make time. What's his name? Jacob. God changed his name to Israel, but our Bible still refers to him often as, I wonder when they met, if in Pharaoh's mind he thought, I'm making time to meet this. I would love to see the look on his face when old Jacob starts blessing Pharaoh. Jacob, he had no clue. You think, here, listen, Israel is greater than Egypt. Jacob is far greater than you. But in this life, Pharaoh appears to be up here and Jacob seems to be way down here. Jacob knows who he is and Jacob starts blessing Pharaoh. Like, no, you're the one that's being blessed by me and my God. This world rarely recognizes eternally a great people. I wish I would have had you write this thought because it strikes me. If Jesus' family were not viewed as remarkable, then I learned this. Somebody needs this this morning. Previously, unremarkable people 
can be used to do remarkable things when God's Spirit empowers them. Somebody here today, by the way, our room is full of us. Previously, unremarkable people can be used to do remarkable things when God's Spirit controls them and empowers them and fills them. This oldest half-brother of Christ is named James. Just a few years later, James is going to be the primary leader of the church in Jerusalem, which is probably one of the two or three most important, greatest churches in the history of the world. James is going to be looked at as the primary. Now, in Nazareth, he's a nobody. But later on, oh, the Holy Spirit comes in him. Here's the key. When the Spirit of Christ comes in a person, he makes us more than we are. James of himself, nothing extraordinary. James with the Holy Spirit writes one of the books of the New Testament. His youngest brother, Jude, filled with the Holy Spirit, writes one of... Do you understand these two guys wrote books that have sold in the billions? Have you ever read, written a book? Have you ever written a book? I wonder how many people in Nazareth wrote books. I wonder how many of them could say, oh, our books have sold in the billions. I'll tell you how many. Zero. None of them have written a book that is... This is the only book that's ever sold in the billions. Billions. Yeah, these two boys, they're nothing special, but you let the Holy Spirit come in somebody. And amazing, remarkable things. And God gets all the credit. Back to Matthew 13. Go back, if you would, verse 54. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Where did he get this wisdom and these mighty works? I had an advantage this week in that I got to go read Mark and his account of this. It was also brief. But also when, if you want to make your way, leave here, hold your spot, make your way over to Luke chapter 4 because Luke shed some insight on, a couple, on at least one of the things. Here's why I'm doing this. Matthew does not include two, and again, he's inspired by the Holy Spirit, so I don't know why this is. Matthew does not include the content of Jesus' teaching. Nor does he include examples of these mighty works that the men are referring to. So are they only referring to these mighty works that we've heard about out there, or are they talking about any mighty works done in Nazareth? Mark chapter, I'm not turning there, we're in Luke 4, we'll read this in a moment. But Mark chapter 6, catch this, verse number 5 alludes to the following. That while in Nazareth, Jesus laid his hands, catch it, here's the wording, laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Okay, he comes to Nazareth, he's teaching in the synagogue, he lays his hands on a few sick people and heals them. Matthew alludes that he didn't do many mighty works, he didn't do many mighty works. Mark says he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Now I sarcastically, you know how I answered that? Oh, just a few. Is that all? Well, if you're one of those sick people, that's not a small thing, that's a big thing. Oh, how did it go down to the synagogue today? Oh, there was, Jesus came back to town, and there was a few sick people, and he put his hands on them and healed them. But other than that, nothing amazing happened. Oh, just a few. But guys, I, you remember I told you there's a gap between 53 and 54? Can I real quickly fill you in, in my heart of hearts? Now, by the way, Matthew has already written of these four things, and we've already preached them. They're not to come. They're behind us. Matthew doesn't always go chronologically. Chronologically, it appears, here's what happened. Verse 53, he leaves Capernaum after teaching the parables. Before verse 54 happens, here's what, here's what Jesus does. He goes in a boat at night. 
You'll remember this. Some of you have been here like a year. You'll remember this. He goes in a boat at night, and an amazing, fearful, terrifying storm comes up. What you didn't see in Matthew, there's multiple boats going over to the place of the Gerasenes. That's where they're going. So Jesus says, we're leaving here. That's what happens after verse 53. So they get in these boats, and they need to go over to the territory of the Gerasenes. In the night, this storm arises. Jesus is so exhausted from ministering, he is literally just sleeping on a cushion in the stern of the ship while the expert fishermen, honestly in their hearts, think this storm is going to kill us. I'm feeling the hydraulics. So I remember preaching this, like just the hydraulic highs and the suction down of this. On I don't know how high the waves were, but it, the water was coming into the boat. These guys honestly think they're dying, and they turn and realize Jesus is sleeping. They fuss at him. Do you not care that we're about to die? Jesus wakes up, anchored at their unbelief, steps forth and says, Hush! Be still! And just like that, the water goes from crazy nighttime storm to placid. Moon's out. Everything's great. And these guys that went from this to all of that, wake him up. Jesus steps out, says like three words, screams at the storm. Storm goes away, and all of a sudden, I am, in my mind, he heads back to the back of the boat. When are you guys going to start believing in me? And I imagine they're like, whoa. I was really scared of the storm. I am really afraid of him. He just, he just told, he's more, that just happened as he's coming into Nazareth just a few days before. I'm wondering, are these guys talking about this around town? If they are, then putting his hand on a few sick people doesn't seem like a big deal. They get to the land of the Gerasenes the next day, literally as they're approaching the dock, here comes two demoniacs that people cannot keep them in chains. They've terrorized the local city. They live among the tombs. They, these two guys come down out of the tombs. They fall at Jesus' feet. The demons in them recognize who Jesus is. They bow at his feet. They start negotiating. Jesus tells them, you're going to come out of this, but please don't make us leave the territory. And some of you will remember, there were 2,000 swine. Can you at least let us go into the swine? Jesus casts them out of these two men. So many demons that they're called legion. He casts them out. They go into the 2,000 swine. The swine go over the cliff into the water and drown. And word starts spreading. It's just been a few days. He goes back to Capernaum. While he's there, this man named Jairus has a dying daughter who's 12 years old. She is literally dying. He comes and he begs for Jesus to come heal his daughter. Jesus is on the way, but there's this enormous crowd. All of a sudden, he stops in the middle of that, headed to Jairus' house, and asks, who, who touched me? And some woman who had been bleeding internally for 12 years, wasted all her money, mistreated by the doctors, had no other avenue, of, of no other course of action. She just thought in her mind, if I just touch his robe... I don't even need him to touch me. I don't even say anything. If I could just touch his robe, I'll be healed. She snuck through the crowd, which she was defiling everyone as she goes because she's bleeding. She touches his robe. She feels that she's been healed, and she was. And Jesus knows that power's gone out. Who, who touched me? Well, Lord, everybody's touching you. Look, you're Jesus. No, someone. He stops and realizes and has a conversation and says, Your faith has made you whole. While he's doing that, so there's third. Is that word again? What no doctors could do and what no one else could help. Just touching his robe, guys. He calmed the storm the other day. 
He cast out thousands of demons. They drove these swine mad. You could, you're not going to believe. And then he comes, and this woman just touches his garment. He doesn't even say anything. She, she just touches his garment. Meanwhile, up ahead, they're telling Jairus, hey, man, we're sorry. Don't even bother him. She's passed away. Jesus knows what they're saying. Is that a miracle? Says, hey, hey. Don't be worried about that. Let's keep going. He goes to the house. Sure enough, she's passed away. He takes Peter, James, and John up to the upstairs, sends everyone else out, tells her, Talitha Kumai, little girl, rise up. She comes back from the dead. This is what's just happened. So Matthew doesn't tell us all of that at this point, but I'm wondering his word spreading out. What day of the week did they get to Nazareth? Are the disciples murmuring and talking? Are these stories leaking out? Have, have the stories got to this person who got to that person who made their way? you, you got to hear this. He's done something big. And then he comes to Nazareth and he just touches a few sick people and heals them. But we don't have his content recorded. Okay, taught in the temple. I had you turn to Luke chapter 4. Look at verse 16. Let's read quickly, looking at our time. And by the way, this is a sample. This is only a sample of his teaching. So what happened? By the way, some would say this is not the same incident. Probably some good arguments for that. I think there's enough clues in this to hint that this is the same, but I wouldn't die for that. Some would say this was a year before. Well, it sure sounds a whole lot like what happens in Matthew 13. So with that thought in mind, I think this is the same time period. Look at verse 16. Luke's version says, He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom. You say, I want to be like Jesus. You want to be like Jesus? As was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Jesus' normal custom was go to the house of God when it's time to go. As was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. Again, he's now 30 years old. He can now take a leading role. He can now speak and teach on the passage. Notice he stands to read the Word of God because you're going to see him sit to teach. That's very normal. That's what they did. They would stand to read the Word of God, and then they would sit to teach. That's not like we do today. Verse 17. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. So they don't have a whole Bible put together like us with chapter and verse divisions. Nothing like in the order they had Scroll. So they have the, the Isaiah scroll was given to him. Again, no chapter verse divisions. He unrolls the scroll and found the place where it was written. He knows exactly where he wants to go. He's handed this scroll, opens it up to what we would call chapter 61 of Isaiah, which says the following. So here you say, I wonder what Jesus did in Matthew 13 that was so astonishing that later on they were so offended at. Well, here we go. He opens the scroll and he begins to read this. Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. He's reading this. The Spirit. Are you there? Everybody there? He's in their synagogue. He's standing to read. And he reads this Old Testament text to these Jews in the synagogue on the Sabbath. Here he goes. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. Look what the text says. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. There's something about Jesus 
And there was already, you say, why were the eyes of the people fixed on him? Can I contend? When you go to the house of the Lord, you need to pay attention when the word of God's being read and taught. But I think this day of all days, did you hear the passage? That's a famous passage. The servant of God, that's the Christ, the Messiah that's coming. He just read that. It's not just wonder what he's going to say about that. It's, I, I think this is what's happening. Did you hear how he just read that? I think he read it how I just read it. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me. And he sits down. Verse number 20 again says, The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say, sure enough, he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Check this one off. If you're wondering about the prophecies of the Old Testament, check this one off. It's done. Just happened. And all, wait, all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. You're like, well, Jeff, this probably isn't the same thing as Matthew 13. It doesn't seem to match. Hang on. He read, me, me, you've heard this. This is now fulfilled. Check it off the list. All spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said... But they're still confused. Is not this Joseph's son? We have a very short version. Matthew and Mark give us the longer. Isn't this and her, her son and their brothers and their brother? Is not this Joseph's son? And he says to them, you say, I wonder what he taught that day. Just a sample. He said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, quote, physician, heal yourself. I know what y'all are thinking. Physician, heal yourself. Jesus telling his local Nazareth synagogue, I know what you guys are thinking. Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum do here in your hometown as well. I know that's what you're thinking. If, if, if a doctor prescribes a particular procedure or medicine because this person has the condition, then if the doctor just so happens to have the same condition, then they should do the same procedure and take the same medicine. So what Christ is saying, I know what you're thinking, physician, heal yourself. If the miracles were good enough to do for those other people, then surely you're going to do them here in your hometown. If it's good for them, then do it for us. We're together on this. Show us some of these awesome, massive miracles. Verse 24, he said to them, and here's where he switches gears. This is a sample. Truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. He's already hinting, you want me to do what I've done in other places here, you're not going to get it. You know why? Because we're getting ready to uncover your heart. Truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, here it goes. And I'll bet you they've never thought about this. They had heard this passage, no doubt many times. Elijah, Elisha, the miracle-working prophets. But I wonder if anyone had ever pointed it out just like this. Probably not. Jesus says... In truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. Many widows in Israel when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. You remember that? Oh, yeah, we remember that. Remember reading that? Three and a half years, it doesn't rain. Famine is everywhere. There was all kinds of widows in Israel. Verse 26, but Elijah was sent to none of them, only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon. That's outside of Israel. It's a Gentile. To a woman who was a widow. There were plenty of widows when there was the famine in the land. It hadn't rained for three and a half years. But God doesn't use his prophet to bless any of the Jewish ones. He blesses this Gentile woman. 
Well, Jesus, why'd you have to go there? That's not what they want to hear. He continues, verse 27, And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. Plenty of lepers in Israel. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Not just a Syrian, the enemy Syrian, a general in the Syrian army. Their most powerful, leading military man of the Syrians, the hated Gentiles. Here comes Jesus talking about how he's the one who gets healed. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And now you're thinking, oh, now this does sound like Matthew. And they rose up. Matthew doesn't include this. They rose up and drove him, Jesus, out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. They're literally, they're so mad at what he just taught, they're going to throw him off the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. MacArthur writes the following, if you want to write it down in your notes. They could not have missed Jesus' powerful rebuking point that a believing Gentile is dearer to God than an unbelieving Jew. They don't want to hear that. But it's unmistakable. I wonder, had anyone ever taught that? Hey, you remember the famine? Plenty of Jewish widows, but God blesses this Gentile widow. And she believes. Plenty of Jewish lepers, but God ends up healing this Gentile Syrian leper. Because his people heard about a God and heard about a prophet named Elisha. And he comes down. He doesn't like the technique that Elisha tells him to do it. But he believes eventually that God is going to cleanse him. And sure enough, God heals the leprous Gentile when there were plenty of Jewish lepers running around. MacArthur writes, they couldn't have missed the point. Go, if you would, back to Matthew chapter 13 quickly. Guys, I don't know the best preacher you've ever heard in your life. Just think for a moment. I'm leaving plenty off of my list. I've heard some good sermons by people named Piper, Platt, Sproul, Ingram. Could name others. No preacher today could hold a candle to Jesus' teaching and preaching. When he taught that day in Nazareth, they were astonished. Something in him, watch, something in him as a person, something in what he said, I've never heard this, and then something in how he said, do you hear how he read that text? Something in how he said it totally blows them away. They find it truly astonishing. No wasted words ever with Jesus. <laughs> I can't say that. No regretful words from Jesus. I sure can't. If you guys knew how many times I've gone home and thought, why did I? And my family helps me on that. <laughs> you know, you shouldn't have said, I know, I know. It happened just last week. <laughs> I won't tell you what it was. Like, yeah, why'd you say that? I know I probably shouldn't have said that. Went a little too far. Jesus never. No misspoken words. Never. If you're taking notes, write this down. Unlike, what makes him so astonishing? Unlike their scribes and unlike their rabbis, Jesus never relied on the wisdom of other teachers. Jeff Bartlett does that quite often. A while ago, I quoted MacArthur. I have three more quotes in my text today. You'd be hard-pressed to find a week where I don't quote. Jesus doesn't like, hey, and to validate my point, so-and-so even said it. Oh, well, 
He just doesn't do that. Why? Because Christ has his own wisdom. Christ has his own authority. So let me make a quick confession. Jeff Bartlett has no innate authority. Jesus has all innate authority. No one should ever come here to hear what I have to say. What I have to say only means beans if it's backed by that right there. Now, as long as I'm speaking this and springing from this, then we have every reason to come here what God has prepared for us to say in this time. Jesus, though, has his own innate authority. He doesn't need to quote anyone else. He just speaks authoritatively. And so here's our quick point. The people in Nazareth are listening to him, and I'm wondering. Again, y'all help me. I'm reading between the lines. Just allow me to do this. Their eyes are fixed, and I'm picturing the leading men in the synagogue Jaw dropped, just looking around the room, everybody else, and then a couple of them catch each other's eyes. What in the world is this? I don't know. How did we miss this? Where? This is the he's been. See, they had rabbinical schools, and they had famous teachers like Nic- Nicodemus, Gamaliel. I don't know if they'd heard of a rising star named Saul of Tarsus or not, but boy, he's coming. They ne- He's never left Nazareth. He's never gone to rabbinical school. I'm picturing them saying the only thing he's ever heard would be what we've heard. Where is he getting? I'm picturing some older zealous fellow, right? Every church should have this person. Other than the three feasts each year, I have a perfect attendance over the last 30 years at the synagogue. And I can promise you we've never heard anything that he's up there talking about. And so they're concluding, where did he get it? What's the answer? Where does he get this wisdom and these mighty works? Whether you know it or not, guys, we have been studying the doctrine of Jesus Christ. So, Jeff, what do you mean? Let me capsulize this, and we'll be quicker in the second point. Let me capsulize it. Ready? The humanity of Jesus is very evident by their reaction He's one of us. He's lived in our town. We knew him as a, it's, it's implied all through the text. We knew him as a little boy. We knew him as a preteen. We knew him as a teenager. We knew him as a young man. And we've known him as an adult man. This is the same. And they name his family members. The answers to their questions are these. Isn't that the carpenter? Yes, that's his adopted son. Isn't his mother named? Yes, he's Mary's physical son. Aren't those his brothers? Yes, the answer is yes. Aren't those his sisters? Yes, 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 yes. Then how does he have these things? Well, here's the thing. He's all of that. So he is a human being. He's all of those relationships. But in addition to that, he's something more, and it is this. He is an eternal member of the Godhead as is evidenced by the divine power of his teaching, his preaching, and his healing. He's not only all of this physically, but he is also the eternal son of God. And so the answer to the question is, where does he get these things? It's because he's God in flesh. That's the answer to your question. And that now leads us up to the second point, number two, is in verse 57, 58. The blinding nature of unbelief. Can't miss this. The blinding nature of unbelief. Notice if you would, verse 57. Notice verse 57. In the middle, Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, his own household. I'm going to take this. I hope I'm not hurting the text. This is a proverbial statement. 
This is not a statement of fact 100% of the time. You're never going to find a prophet who has honor in his hometown. This is a proverb. More times than not, 99 out of 100, we could say, 19 out of 20, 9 out of 10 times, a prophet is not going to be honest. This is a proverbial statement. Don't answer out loud, but answer in your mind, what is a true prophet? What is a true prophet? What do they do? A prophet receives the word of God and speaks the word of God. A true prophet was to be treated with honor. That's what the text is teaching us. That's what Jesus is saying. A prophet is not without honor. In other words, a prophet should be honored. but And he's not without honor except in his own hometown and among his own family. True prophets who spoke the word of God, who spoke on behalf of God, they are to be treated with honor. But they're rarely treated with honor and great respect by their hometown. I'm going to give you two reasons. The second one, I want you to write it down. Here's the first one. You say, why are they not treated with honor? Listen. Because true prophets often have to confront people with their sin. This isn't hometown boy. They find out he's a really good singer and he's the most famous person. And he's put out an album that went platinum. You let that guy come back or you let her come back to the hometown. And everybody's out and like, oh, we love you. We adore you. Can we have your autograph? Please say you're my friend. Remember we went to third grade together? They love them. The greatest writer, the best actor, that's not this. A prophet comes back to town, and he has to tell people about their sin. It's a hometown people are like, hold on, who do you think you are telling us about our sin? Jesus says, yeah, they're not without honor out there. Hometown, they don't like it so much. If you would write this down, it even overlaps that idea. Here's why they're not honored in their hometown, because the power of preconceived notions is hard to overcome. We could go a lot of directions, even away from this text, with that sentence. The power of preconceived notions is hard to overcome. I do this a lot with my hands. You'll have to forgive me. Let's do our timeline, okay? Here's a typical prophet. Typical prophet. They're born. Watching. They live. Here's why they're not honored in their hometown. They're born, they live, however long. Then there's this God encounter. And when they have the God encounter, there's this anointing that's put on them. And they're given a revelation and probably and usually future revelations. So they start declaring that from this point. And all the people out here know them from this point. The whole time they've known them has been from this point because of the encounter with God, the anointing, the revelations, they're teaching, they're preaching. And so that's when everybody knows them. Now, there's this other group of people, though, that are their lifelong acquaintances. And their thought is, yeah, but we knew them back here before. Did you catch that in Isaiah, Jesus says, though he's always been God, there was a time at the baptism by John the Baptist that the Holy Spirit anointed Christ for ministry. There was an anointing. And then his life changed and took off. These people are saying, but we knew him back here. By the time Jesus comes back home to Nazareth, this is important, he already has a reputation. Powerful healer, great teacher, powerful preacher. Look at these guys following him. They've given their life up. Those dudes are convinced he's the Messiah. Those guys will die for him. And that's one of our boys. The craziest thing is instead of looking at that and saying, wow, we're on the map, boys. 
God has honored little Nazareth with letting the Christ, the Messiah, be one of us and lived among us the last 27 years. Who knew? Rather than being honored by it, they're jealous. The next sentence I'm about to say is, from this point on, is more important than anything I've said up to this point. The next sentence is a super simple sentence, but it's important to understand. One reason that Nazareth didn't believe in Jesus is because they did not want him to be the Messiah. Let me say that again. One of the reasons the people of Nazareth did not believe in Jesus, it's not because there wasn't evidence to believe in Jesus. They didn't want him to be the Messiah. I think the evidence means this. Here's their thoughts. We know him. Let it be somebody different. All these other people in the world are hearing about Jesus, and many of them are coming and surrendering, but the people of Nazareth are like, no, 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 no. We know him. We don't want it to be him. Let it be somebody else. Do y'all know that there are people that have lived in America that have left America to go to Nepal, to China, to India? Those three come to mind. Now, why would American, oh, sightseeing, or on mission trips? I'm not talking about that. There are people in America who've lived here and grown up, and they just feel driven and compelled. I need to go to Nepal, and I need to go to China, and I need to go down to India. Why? I'm looking for the meaning of life. That person, the American who does that says, oh, I know about Christianity. I want something different. I want something different. That's, I think that's these people. We know about him. We don't want it to be him. We want it to be somebody else. Guys, if this was Wednesday night, I'll tell you what I would do. And those of you who have been here on Wednesday nights know that we've done this. Don't let this scare you away. We try to be interactive sometimes, particularly, well, prayer time and Bible studies. If I had time, I'd give you 60 or 90 seconds, and I would say the following. Hey, guys, there's two words in our text today in these six verses that should not belong together. There are two words that shouldn't. They are in the text, but they shouldn't be in the text together. Can you find them? Again, this is my opinion. You may find something different. But I hope just by saying that, I see several of you, your eyes are already scouring because you want to get the answer, and I love that. You're like, I want to know what words don't go in this. Don't go. Oh, there's that word. and There are some key words in the text. Two in particular, in my mind, do not go together. They shouldn't be together. Hang with me. Here they are. The word astonished in verse 54. Don't say it out loud, but some of you, raise your hand. You say, I think I know the word that should not go with astonished. Would you raise your, raise your hand? Anybody? I see a few. Look at verse number 57. They took offense. The word astonished doesn't go with taking offense, stumbling at Christ. Verse 54, they're astonished. Listen to me. They really were astonished. Wow. We've never heard anything like this. We've never heard anyone talk like this. The, the authority. And the knowledge and the content, new ideas. We know he didn't go away. They don't even have new ideas. Has anybody heard this guy speak? Look what he can do. And on top of that, what we've heard he has done, they're blown up. They're astonished. And then a little bit later, they stumble. They take a, those don't go together. D.A. Carson writes the following, as I borrow from him like Jesus didn't do. Carson put this out. Let me throw it at you. He says, by their questions, the people merely condemned themselves. He said, what does that mean? By their He's saying their questions condemned them. 
What questions? Look at the end of 66. You got your Bibles open? You should have your Bible open. Where then did this man get all these things? There's a question. I want to ask them, what things? Where did he get what things? Go back to verse 54 at the end of the verse. Where then did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Whoa, whoa, whoa. So you're saying he has wisdom? Yes. And he has mighty works? Yes. Where did he get them? Then hold on. That astonishment and asking those questions doesn't go with offense. Carson completes the quote. I'll read it all together. He says, by their questions, the people merely condemn themselves. They cannot doubt the fact of his wisdom and miracles, yet they reject his claims. So hold on, which is it? When I was a little kid, I, I think this is a true memory. I was really little, really little. I remember being in the kitchen of our double wide, and in my mind, we had an oval table. It wasn't a very large one. It was, a, it was an oval table, and it was those kind that had that metal silver stripping around the edge of it, right? It came in the double wide home that we were living in. And I remember as it's oval this way, I'm sitting in this spot and we rarely ever ate together, but I remember we, we were eating together that night and somebody prayed for the meal. And as soon as it was over, my older brother, who is two years older than me, I just felt compelled that I need to let my parents know that Russell had his eyes open as we prayed. So here we are. Somebody's praying. Russell has his eyes open. I don't remember my parents' response, but it should have been something like this. So you're saying it's important to have your eyes closed? Well, yes. Well, how did you know Russell's eyes were open? Uh, okay, yeah. You can't have it both ways, buddy. It's important to have. I'm not here to preach about closing your eyes while we pray. Jesus says, watch and pray. And my dad loves that verse. Uh, anyway. You can't have it both ways. Hey, Nazareth, is he astonishing? Or is he someone to be offended at? If he's astonishing, then why are you going downward spiritually? Why are you stumbling over him? One word in our text makes these two words possible to be linked together. What is that word? Unbelief. The last word of chapter 13 is what makes possible for astonishment to turn into offense. Unbelief. A while ago I said that everything that I would say after this is more important than previous, and this continues. Unbelief. Last week I alluded to three parts of saving faith. You've heard it a lot from me in the past. You're going to continue to hear from me these three ideas. They're crucial to salvation. You don't get saved without all three parts of saving faith. I hope as I'm just saying that, some of you right now are going, oh. Remember, we come to church to pray together, worship together, fellowship together, exhort one another, and train in the Word. Here we go again. Here's a review. And some of you that were here last week and have been here for years and years, you should not be sitting there right now going, oh, what are those? Here they are again. Understanding. So we hear the gospel, and there's, all right, I understand what it's saying. Then there is agreeing. I understand what it says. I agree with that. But then there is not just agreeing, understanding, leading to agreeing. There's this one. Raise your hand if you remember the third one. It's the most important. Oh, no, we got to work on this. Trust. So here's, you hear the gospel. Understand it. I understand what that says. I agree with it so much so that I trust it. I'm resting in Christ. Jeff, where are you headed? This is important. 
If a person lacks understanding, I know that guy talked for over an hour, and I just I can't remember one thing. I didn't get anything out of it. If a person lacks understanding, they do not have faith. You can't agree with what you don't understand, and you sure can't trust what you don't agree with and you don't understand. Again, Jeff, where are you heading? If a person lacks understanding, then they lack faith. But the unbelief that's described in verse number 58 is not so much a lack of understanding. Rather, it's a willful refusal to agree with and a willful refusal to trust what a person already understands. This is important. hope you just caught that. There's a difference. This word unbelief is not like, I just don't understand what the scriptures are saying. I don't understand the gospel. The world's filled with people who don't understand. This is talking about those, oh, I know what it's saying. Did you understand Jesus' message today down at the synagogue? Absolutely. So did you accept it? No. Why? If you're taking notes, write the following. They didn't deny Jesus' wisdom. They didn't deny his power. They just rejected him. We don't want him. Don't let it be him. We know him, but doesn't he have great wisdom? Yes. Your questions condemn you. Where did he get this wisdom? Where did he get the ability to do these mighty So you're saying they're mighty works and he has great wisdom? Yes, then why are you rejecting? Because we don't want him. MacArthur writes it this way. This one's important. He says, only divine power and wisdom could explain the greatness of what he said and did. Only divine power and wisdom. Then he fast forwards. I write, wrote the following. MacArthur writes, hear it. Those who saw and heard Jesus, go back in time. Those who saw Jesus and heard Jesus, he says, they did not reject him for lack of evidence, but in spite of overwhelming evidence. They did not reject him because they lacked the truth, but because they rejected the truth. Later, he concludes by saying, because they preferred their own way to his. Ladies and gentlemen, there's a difference between I don't understand and I am choosing not to believe. I don't like that. The worst part of hell, which we talked about last week, and that quote from John Bunyan still haunts me. But I'm going to promise you guys, the worst part of hell for eternity, on and on and on, is reserved for those who understand but willfully reject the truth of Christ and his gospel. So much so, what happens when they reject him, they're offended at him. Verse number 58 says, and he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. In other words, since you're, hey, if you were Nazareth, it's as though Christ is saying, since you're rejecting clear revelation, you're not going to get more revelation. Mark even says that Jesus could, do not, could not do many mighty works because of their unbelief. Oh, so their unbelief restricted Jesus' power. Oh, no, 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 no. That's not what happened. Again, if you're taking notes. Their unbelief did not weaken Jesus' ability. He simply chose to not waste his power and to not waste more spiritual light on them. You're not going to get more. You've already bucked and rejected me based of what, off what I had to say about a couple of Gentiles or based off of me saying that Isaiah wrote about me. You got offended at that. Then you're not going to get more powerful miracles like you want me to do like has been done in Capernaum. 
and other places around Galilee. So I'd ask you the following. Quick question. In the Gospels, did Jesus perform miracles before people believed? Did he ever perform miracles before people believed? Lazarus, come forth. Was Lazarus believing? Lazarus was in paradise. Was the family believing? Oh, no, no. Yes, he performed miracles before people believed. But Jesus did not reward those who refused to believe. There are people, they don't believe yet, but there are others who have the information and they just reject it. So I want to ask you a quick question. I'm nearing the end. Do you have areas of unbelief? I'm not asking, do you have questions? I've got questions about God or I don't understand some of the things about the Scripture. I'm not saying that. I'm asking all of us this morning, are there things about God and are there aspects of His promises that you're like, oh, I understand what the Bible says. I understand it. I just don't believe it. Do you have anything like that? I wrote a few examples. In Romans 8, 28, the Bible says all things work together. All things work together for good for those who love God, who are the called according to His purpose. Do you believe that? Or do you in the fiery moment, do I in the fiery testing moment say, this can't turn out for my good? Oh, I believe it when other people are going through the fiery trial, but this can't be, God can't bring good out of this. Then you're calling God a liar. 1 John chapter 1, verse number 7, the second part of the verse says, And the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Is there anyone listening right now? You say, oh, I know what the text says, but I don't think he can forgive me of what I did. He wouldn't save me. Or worse yet, he can't save them. Have you heard what they've done? Theirs is really bad. You know those people. Oh, the last I checked, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses from all sin. John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Acts chapter 4, verse 12 says, talking about the name of Jesus, there's none other name given among men whereby we must be saved. It is only through Christ. Is there anyone listening right now says, oh, I know what the Bible says, that Jesus is the only way to heaven. I just think there are some other ways. You're calling God a liar. You have unbelief. What you're saying is, I get it. I know what it's saying. I just think there's another way. Romans chapter 3, verse number 28, a very important one. The Bible says we are justified by faith apart from the works of the law. So there's faith and then there's works of the law. The Bible says we've concluded we're justified by faith. We're saved by faith. And somebody could be here listening right now and say, I, I know what the Bible says and I understand that. I just think we need to help God out. I, we we got to believe but you better get baptized before you die. Well, then you don't believe. You have unbelief. You're refusing the Scripture. Here's a big one with folks. Romans eleven thirty three. Oh, the depth of the riches and, and, and wisdom of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. God is confounding to Jeff Bartlett. His ways do not make sense to me. Some of it looks indicting against God. Romans chapter 9 verse number 14 says that with God there is absolutely no injustice. God's ways are confusing and it can look like he's doing wrong and God's committing sin and if he knew from the beginning and he is all powerful then why did he allow okay 
I don't know the answer to that. All I know is you and I don't have the right to say there's injustice with God. God's got some explaining to do. No, he doesn't. God doesn't have any explaining to do to anyone. My job is to say, I don't know the answer, but there's no injustice with God. Because the Bible says there isn't. To say God has to explain himself, why do bad things happen to good people? Hogwash. That's the dumbest, most unbiblical question. Here's a question. Since God's all-knowing and God is all-powerful, why does anything good ever happen to people that break his laws? That's the question. Why does anything good ever happen to people that break his laws? How many people break his laws? All of us. <laughs> why does anything good ever happen to us? We always want to ask the wrong question and put God in a bad light. That's unbelief. Write this down, and I'm, I'm very near done. I keep saying that, Donna. It's 12.06. Verse 58, did you let this sink in? He did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. People who doubt God, people who doubt God restrict themselves from receiving the demonstration of his presence and his power. That is a simple Bible truth. Guys, that is proven through the scriptures. People who doubt God restrict themselves. I'm particularly talking to Christians here. People who doubt God restrict themselves from the demonstration of His presence and His power. I wonder if there's any Christians listening right now who think, I want to go to a church that regularly experiences God's power in our midst. Do you know the revelation of God? And when you hear it, do you believe it and act on it and live like God is telling the truth? If you'll do that, we'll see the power of God in our church. Is there anyone thinking, I just want to have a prayer life that regularly experiences the mighty works of God. Not because of my prayers, but because God answers my prayers. Okay, I'm going to tell you the secret of that. Learn what the Bible says about prayer and His promises and know that they're true and start acting like they're true. But I don't feel God. I don't feel like He's listening. Hey, I'm there all the time. That's where I start every morning. But if you just launch by faith, God, I don't even feel like you're listening. But I know you're here. I'll give you a little secret. If you ever see me doing this, here's what I'm doing, right? If you have to, put your hands just very close to your face and then bring your theology into play and say, God, you're between me and my hands. So, oh, there you are right there. You say, Jeff, that's silly. It helps me. When I feel like he's way out there and I can't get then bring it in. God, there you are. Talk to him. I'm not making him little. I'm bringing him near. Like, wake up, Jeff. Start praying with some faith. And then you'll see things happen. Say, so I can't remember the last time I had a prayer answered. It's because you are filled with unbelief. Either that or straight up rebellion and not praying at all. The last word in verse 58 is unbelief. J.C. Ryle writes the following. And here's where it boils down. Wow. Ryle writes, unbelief. We see in this one single word the secret of everlasting ruin of multitudes of souls. They perish forever. Hear it. It's true. They perish forever because they will not believe. They 
will not believe. There is nothing beside on, on, in earth or in heaven that prevents their salvation. Listen to this. Their sins, boy, what about their sins? Their sins, however many, might all be forgiven. The Father's love is ready to receive them. There's un- unsaved people listening to me right now, and Ryle, years ago, wrote about you. He says, there's nothing beside in earth or in heaven that prevents their salvation. Their sins, however many, might all be forgiven. The Father's love is ready to receive them. The blood of Christ is ready to cleanse them. The power of the Spirit is ready to renew them. But a great barrier interposes. They will not believe. If you've ever heard the gospel and you are not saved right now, it's because you will not believe. If you've heard the gospel and say, I understand what the gospel says. The gospel says that we're sinners and God is holy and he's just and he has to punish my sin. But he loved us so much that he sent his only son to become a human being so that he could die on a cross and take the punishment for my sin. And the only way to get to heaven is by putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. Oh, I understand that. But if you're lost in your sins, it's because you will not believe. You will not. I will it to not believe. I'm not doing that. I'm evaluating it. You're going to die and go to hell if that's you. And your blood will be on your own head. You're willfully. Then Ryle continues as he quotes Jesus in John 5. Jesus says, you will not come to me that you might have life. You will not come to me. Over and over in John, Jesus says, come to me. You're hungry? I'm the bread of life. You'll be satisfied. You're thirsty? Come to me. But you will not come to me. That you might have life. Unbelief restricts Christians and it damns sinners. And so, we Christians, here's your last note, we have to understand the following. So, we come full circle. We have to understand the following. Number one, only God can break unbelief in people. So, Jeff, if unbelief is the big problem, then we just need to do better and try harder. Guys, I'm going to tell you something. You cannot break someone's unbelief. Only God. You say, Jeff, where's that in the Bible? Look at John chapter 6, verse 44. It'll be on the screen. Jesus says, so this is important, no one can come to me. Jesus If you just read this over and over, it would affect your theology. Jesus says, no one, by the way, come to him for life. If you want eternal life, you have to come to Christ. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. You have no chance on your own. And Jesus says, I will raise him up on the last day. In case we, like, okay, I don't think that's saying what I think it says. It surely means something else. He repeats it in verse 64, 20 verses later. Jesus says, there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, that's why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. You say, hold on, Jeff, hang on, time out. If the only way to go to heaven is by God's grace... Received by faith on our end in Christ. Again, grace alone, received through faith alone in Christ alone, then people have to have faith. What about these people who have unbelief? Well, you can't break their unbelief. You better pray. 
God has the power to break unbelief. He's the only one. So pray. Pray for the lost that you know. Pray for the lost in Anderson. Pray for the lost of the world. Like, let's pray for them. God has the power. Okay, good. I'm praying for them. I'm done. No, now I'm done with this. God uses our preaching and our teaching. So pray as though only God can break their unbelief and then speak to people as though God really does use our teaching and our preaching to break people's unbelief. God has to do it, but he uses our teaching and preaching. We see this in Romans 10, 17. Notice again, so faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, through the preaching of Christ. So that's my conclusion, guys. You only get saved by faith in Christ alone. But we can't just drum up understanding and faith. We can't throw off unbelief. God must draw us, so we need to pray to the Father to save sinners. But then go out and share the gospel. Why? Because God uses our teaching and preaching to break people's unbelief. He's doing it. He's using us. Would you bow your heads just for a moment? Heads bowed, eyes closed, if you would, just for a moment. Let's finish where we started. Christians, I just want to be honest. The point of the parable of the sower is that most people will not understand and receive our preaching and our teaching. Most will not. But another point of the parable of the sower, and this is so important, some will hear and will understand and will receive and they will agree and they will trust Christ. And can I contend with us? Those people are worth it. You're going to get rejected a lot. You're going to have a lot of people look at you with confusion like, I just don't understand. I know it. You can't make them understand. But we can keep presenting the gospel knowing that some do believe and get saved and produce fruit. And they're worth it. And God is worth it. And so with heads bowed and eyes closed, is there anybody that's lost in their sins listening right now and maybe for the first time ever you're like something just happened I understand the gospel today I know what it's saying I can't help God out I'm not saved by the works of the law it is by faith alone for by grace are you saved through faith in Christ and maybe you're saying for the first time in my life I do understand that then will you come to Christ that you might live? I want to encourage you, literally, right where you're sitting, would you do this? Go to Christ. Claim the promises of God. You say, well, I don't know a lot of the promises. The Bible says everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The Bible says if we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. John 6:37 says, "All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and he that comes to me, I will not cast out." He always says yes if you'll come in faith. So I challenge you right now, would you just go to the Lord privately, right where you're at? And confess your sins. Agree that your sins have separated you from God. God, I'm a sinner. Yes, I'm a sinner. 
But God, I've heard that your son died for my sins and it was enough. And then tell God and with everything that's in you, rest in Christ and say, God, I right now, I receive your free gift of salvation. I take it right now. I can't save myself. I take you as my Savior and my Lord. And I put my faith in Jesus alone and his death on the cross. Christians, pray for understanding. Pray for it. God, would you give me more understanding so that I can share my faith? And Lord, help me to realize many will reject, but some will accept. Christian, let this truth sink deeply in you. Previously, unremarkable people can be used by God's Holy Spirit to do remarkable things when He does it. God can use you. Learn your faith and speak your faith. And God loves faith. He loves it. He hates unbelief. If we do not believe Him, if we understand His promises but do not believe them, we're calling Him a liar and we will forfeit the demonstrations of his presence and his power in our life. Don't be guilty of that. Would you pray with me as we close? Father, Lord, I asked you multiple times to open this text to me. Lord, I'm still not fully there. But Lord, I pray that as we put a challenge out for the listeners this morning to ask you to speak to them, Lord, if you did, and I believe that you would, that wherever, even if it was one little thing or if it was three things, Lord, whatever it was, that we would be obedient to the revelation. Lord, those times in our life where we've had shocking revelation, may they not be met with unbelief but with acceptance. Lord, may we every day be astonished at Christ and then go live like we believe him see you do remarkable things in our life. Lord, would you do that in grace for you this coming week? Please. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all for coming today. Have a wonderful week this week.